0: Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. And once again for the new people, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are currently in a section that runs from chapters 5 to 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. And when we moved out of chapter 5 into chapter 6, we said that at the end of chapter 5, Jesus was dealing with the subject of heretical teaching. As we move into chapter 6, the focus changed to hypocritical living. And so this teaching of Jesus, both at the end of chapter 5, well, really all throughout the sermon, I should say, was directed primarily at the scribes and Pharisees. Now, in this section, which runs from chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus gives three examples of hypocrisy and religious practices and then commands his disciples, when you do these things, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees, all right? Have the right heart when you do these things. The three areas that Jesus zeroes in on are the areas of giving, praying, and fasting. And as we pointed out when we began this section, it wasn't really the act of giving, praying, or fasting that the Lord was condemning, it was the motive of the scribes and Pharisees behind the way they practiced these things. Notice once again that Jesus told his disciples in this section, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, in other words, give money to the poor, verse 2. When you pray, verse 5. And moreover, when you fast, verse 16. He said, when, not if. The Lord Jesus Christ expected his people to do these things as a regular part of their devotional lives, their importance. The real issue here was hypocrisy. He said, when you give, pray, or fast, don't be like the hypocrites, thinking primarily of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, we've already looked at the first two, which dealt with the right and wrong ways to give and to pray in verses 1 through 15. Today, we want to look at the third area of devotion that Jesus addresses, right and wrong ways to fast, which he covers in verses 16 to 18. Of the three activities that Jesus teaches in these verses, verses 1 through 18, giving and praying are by far the most familiar to us as believers fasting not so much all right i think that most christians in our country kind of see fasting i think in kind of it's kind of a medieval kind of a monastic uh type of a thing maybe that has its roots in some fanaticism you know stuff that monks and priests and people back in those days practiced, but not something that we need to concern ourselves with today however folks that is simply not true See, fasting is something that was practiced by God's people in both the Old and New Testament periods as well as all throughout the church age. Of course, fasting is the abstinence from food, which is no doubt why it's not very popular among Christians. We, we love the fellowship, don't we? And we love to do it uh, at our favorite restaurants. Give up food. I wish you out of your mind. Come out of him, Satan. I mean, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, it's like to suggest such a thing, you know, it's like give me a break. But look, God did ordain fasting in the Old Testament to begin with for his people. I want you to understand, though, that God really only commanded Israel to fast one day a year. That was all he commanded. One day of year on the feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 23, verse 27. Later on in the nation's history, we read in Zechariah 8, verse 19, that four other regular Days of fasting evolved in the nation's history. These were linked to the Babylonian captivity and invasion. So they began to fast a day in the 10th month as they mourned the siege of Jerusalem. They fasted a day in the 4th month which marked the capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They fasted in the 5th month to commemorate or to mourn over the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And then they set aside a day in the seventh month to mourn the murder of Gedaliah, who was appointed by the Babylonian king to be governor over Jerusalem. So these four regular days of fasting evolved over the years. Initially, God only gave one day. Then they added four other regular days. Now, does that mean they never fasted for any other reason? Well, sure they did. If you read the Old Testament, you see that during times of national calamity or when enemies were outside the gates, they would fast and pray, of course. But these were the normal ones that evolved over their uh, history. Now, by the time of Christ, the Pharisees had made fasting a -a twice-a-week thing, usually on Mondays and Thursdays. Why Mondays and Thursdays? Well... They said those were the days, that you know, I forgot it was Monday or Thursday, that Moses went up to Sinai to get the law. And then the other day, of course, was the day he came down with the law. So they set aside Mondays and Thursdays to fast. That was their reason. Because Moses went up, commemorate that day to get the law, came down with the law, we commemorate that day. I'm sure it was just a coincidence that Mondays and Thursdays just happened to be the major market days in Jerusalem where you had all the merchants and the shoppers and the farmers in town, which would have made public displays of fasting. You get your biggest audience when there's most people in town, right? And so once again, the scribes and Pharisees had taken a legitimate spiritual practice and had turned it into another opportunity to publicly showcase their phony piety. And just to make sure no one missed the fact that they were fasting on those days, they walked through the streets of the town with their hair all disheveled with a very pained look on their faces. They even took ashes from their fireplaces and they rubbed them on their faces to make themselves look pale. This is what Jesus is condemning and correcting here in Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. Let's read them. The Lord says, Moreover, when you fast, talking with his disciples now, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces. Boy, these guys are really going for it, you know? Talk about putting on a show. I mean, I can just imagine what they look like. Walking around all pale and hair all messed up, you know. and Oh, this really agonizing look on their face. Oh, man, look at it. Everybody could see who was fasting, you know. Jesus, don't this, they, these guys disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, once again, originally the purpose for fasting, on the only day that God actually commanded His people to fast in the law of Moses, Yom Kippur, David Atonement, the whole purpose of that one day was to mourn over their sins. That was the focus, to mourn over their sins. This was God's heart. For this day of fasting. And why he instituted this one day out of the year. For them to abstain from food. Humble themselves. He wanted that. This is a national thing. He wanted the nation to. To think about. This past year. And how many times. And how many ways. They had actually. Sinned against God. Violated his holy commandments. Because it was a way to, to convict them. See when they. God first invited them to be his people. He said, look, I am calling you out of Egypt, which is a type of the world, to be my special people, my holy people. I want you to represent me to the people of this world. I want every nation under heaven to know that this nation is special because they have made me their God. And as such as my people, I want you to live a holy life. I want you to to manifest my character to this world. So that when they didn't do that and they fell short of that, God wanted them to understand how they had not really represented him properly. This would bring a sense of conviction, guilt, mourning, repentance, sadness, as they then focused on the sacrifice of Yom Kippur, which alone could atone for their sins and forgive them. So it was a very special day, a very holy day. And just because the scribes and Pharisees had turned fasting into a kind of a, I don't know, cheap religious prop, for their spiritual sideshow, does that mean that we as the people of God today should not fast because they, you know, abused it? Well, I don't see it that way. Remember, once again, that Jesus said, when you help the poor, when you pray, when you fast. No Christian today would challenge the legitimacy of helping the poor and praying. Well, then, why should we challenge the legitimacy of fasting as something that's for today? Because Jesus lumped all three together and said these should be a part of your regular devotional spiritual life. I think the answer is obvious. Now it's important to understand that the purpose of fasting changed somewhat in the New Testament. You see the early church knew that Jesus Christ had forgiven them for their sins. So they didn't fast to mourn and to weep over their sins like the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament before Jesus died and rose again. The reason for their fasting was primarily to deny their flesh in order that their spirit might be strengthened and their communion with God would become closer. That was the basic idea. They also fasted, and so do we, when they were seeking direction from God, strength against sin, protection from their enemies, or simply when praying about a time of spiritual revival for themselves, their church, or their town. Now, when it comes to the subject of fasting, a lot of people have questions because it's, it's not something a lot of Christians practice today or even know about today. Now, I know you guys know about this subject because we've talked about it. Twice a year we set aside five days to fast and pray. We, we suspend all studies, small groups, Bible studies, everything. We come to the church here and every evening we pray as we have fasted all day long. Now, I've taught you guys from the Word about what fasting is all about, but I always get people coming up to me who say to me when I, we mentioned the five-day fast is coming up and, and start preparing yourself and praying about it. I always have new people come up to me and say, you know, I've never fasted in my life. What is it all about? How do you do it? What's, what's involved? And So let me just take a few minutes to try to answer some of those common questions, even though most of you already know the answers to these, but just bear with me. What is fasting? Well, today fasting has been defined as giving up anything for a time as a way to draw close to God. So people define fasting in all kinds of ways. Uh, Some people say, I'm fasting from TV this week so I can draw close to the Lord. I've heard people say, I'm I'm giving up chocolate uh, for Lent so I can draw close to the Lord. I'm giving up caffeine okay, uh, so I can draw close to the Lord this week. Look, I'm not saying giving up anything for the Lord is a bad thing. I'm just wondering how much caffeine and chocolate do you consume that you're going to be able to spend that much time in God's presence, all right? But, I mean, anything you're going to give up, if you want to draw close to God, I praise the Lord, right? Just make sure it's giving up stuff that you really like. I mean, you can't say I'm fasting from broccoli for the next three weeks. <laughs> what, do you like broccoli? I hate it. Well, then it's not much of a sacrifice, okay? Some people even say I'm giving up a favorite activity like uh, golf or some other recreation or hobby to draw close to the Lord. Hey, that's fine. I'm not putting that down. But biblically speaking, to fast means not to eat. That's what the biblical definition of fasting is. And the Bible describes two main kinds of fast that people in biblical times entered into. What we would call the normal fast and then the partial fast. The normal fast is simply abstaining from food completely for a period of time. We know that Jesus Christ entered into This kind of fast 40 days and 40 nights before he began his public ministry. You can read about that in Matthew 4 and Luke. And I think Mark also record that. But um, you remember how it says in Matthew 4 verse 2. And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. That means the Lord did not eat any solid food during that time. Now notice he said he fasted from food, but not from water. It says after the 40 days he was hungry, but not that he was thirsty. Why do I bring that up? Because when we talk about a full fast or a normal fast where you abstain from all food, we're not telling you not to drink water. I make that point because the human body can go without food for days, weeks even, but not without water. So whenever we fast from food, we always drink plenty of water. Just in case you have that question. But a normal fast is abstaining from all foods, solid and liquid. I heard it a story one time about a group of young guys who were going to fast uh, and pray and, and all. And uh, As they were fasting, one of the guys, you know, seemed like he was doing real well on this fast. And so the other guys asked him, well, are you fasting? He said, yes, I've stayed away from all solid foods. You, what else have you been doing? You've been drinking stuff? Yeah, well, I've been drinking milkshakes and, and various other things. <laughs> all foods, solid liquid, but drink water, okay? But that's a normal fast. That's the one typically the Bible talks about when it says that people fasted. But there is a partial fast. What is that? Well, it's what the name implies. It's a restriction from food, but not a total abstention from food. A good example of a partial fast was the one that Daniel entered into. Daniel had received a revelation that kind of troubled him, and he was wanting to seek God for further guidance in what to do with this revelation. And it says in Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks was fulfilled. So Daniel goes on what we call a partial fast. He was eating food, but he wasn't eating meat, no pleasant bread, in other words, pastries, no wine. He probably lived on a diet of vegetables or water and unleavened bread. In fact, some people actually call a partial fast a Daniel fast. And that's fine. It can take different forms, though. A person could give up foods that are pleasant, like meats and sweets, soft drinks. And again, only eat maybe uh, some unleavened bread and water like John Wesley did when confronting a case of demonic possession, went into a time of fasting, partial fast, where he uh, prayed and Prepared himself to uh, engage this uh, evil spirit. A partial fast, though, could also consist of cutting out a meal a day for a period of time, you know, like giving up lunch for a week or two. To just spend that hour, you know, in your car, maybe sitting there just praying. And that's a legitimate thing to do, uh, spending that time with the Lord in prayer. Try not to make it up, though. You know, try not to uh, gorge yourself at breakfast and dinner then. I mean, we had a gentleman out here a few years ago who uh, is an Egyptian Christian and a doctor. And he was saying, and he lived in Egypt, of course, for a long time, and he was saying that in Egypt, um, and I'm sure this is probably true around the Middle East, but he said when Ramadan came, that was the Muslim uh, month where they set aside uh, from sun up to sun down to fast and pray. And so they actually paid a guy to walk through the town at 4 o'clock, blowing a horn or something, waking people up so they could gorge themselves, before the sun came up, and then after the sun went down, they would gorge themselves at night. He said, as a doctor, we hated Ramadan because the hospitals were filled with people with gastrointestinal issues because they were gorging themselves before and after the fast. Now, folks, that's not the right way to do it. That's not the right way to do it. Let me just say this one more time. Remember this rule. You can pray without fasting. I'm not saying God doesn't hear your prayers if you don't fast. But you never fast without praying, because the whole idea of fasting is to couple it with prayer. Very important point. You say, well, why should I fast? Did Jesus fast? Is he our example? Do we want to follow in his footsteps? If Jesus fasted, then we need to fast. Why did the Lord fast? You'll notice he fasted throughout his, his, probably his whole life, but we see it especially in the Gospels during his ministry. Why did the Lord fast? Because he was on a mission. And he knew that the devil and his demons were going to try their best to derail that mission. To try to do something to get him to do something that would blow his mission. So he fasted often. In fact, he fasted so much that the disciples at times got worried about him. Now, I'm not saying God wants us to fast that way. I heard of one Catholic mystic who fasted so often she actually starved herself to death. That doesn't honor God. I don't believe that's what God is, is in mind when he wants us to fast today. I mean, Jesus had, I w- we would all agree, a very special, important ministry to fulfill. His ministry was extreme. as It called for extreme measures. Therefore, he fasted more than most. And later on, as he moved towards the cross, especially, he really began to fast more. Because it was strengthening his spirit by denying his flesh. Remember now, he took on a body of flesh. And he was denying the flesh so that his spirit could grow even stronger for what awaited him. It was a spiritual battle. And we are facing a spiritual battle in our lives as well. That's why we need to fast. Look, this battle that we face on a daily basis is between the devil and his demons. Listen, for the souls of our loved ones, our kids, our spouses, our parents, our grandchildren, our friends and neighbors, etc., all the people that we know and love. The problem is that far from doing battle against the enemy on behalf of these people, all too often we don't even realize that many of the problems in their lives are, of those that we are closest to, they're, they're spiritual in nature. A lot of the bondages that we see in people's lives that we love are spiritual in nature. Sometimes demonic activity or warfare could actually cause... Physical issues to arise. We'll see that in a moment. And the only thing many times that will set them free from their bondage to the devil is the power of God released into their lives through our prayer and fasting. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that their salvation depends on us. If we won't take it seriously to pray for them and maybe even fast, uh, and God wants to reach them, uh, he will always lead somebody across their path that has a ministry that I think is more inclined to fasting and prayer than maybe most. But if you want to be a part in delivering your loved ones from the power of the devil and bringing them into the marvelous light of Christ, fasting, prayer especially, but fasting once in a while is a very important element to that. It that goes for ourselves too. I mean, I'm not just saying for other people. We are locked in a battle with the enemy too, who is trying to destroy our walk and neutralize our effectiveness for the Lord. Maybe we're wrestling with areas of bondage too. We pray all the time when we come together in prayer meetings that God would deliver the people in our church from their bondage to alcohol and cigarettes and food and drugs and pornography and so on. We realize that these are demonic strongholds in people's lives, even saved people. And we need to come together and pray for each other that these strongholds would be broken. I really encourage you, if you've never read Arthur Wallace's book, God's Chosen Fast, read it. He made this observation. Let me quote him. He said and I quote in these days when the spirit of God is moving and the power of God is being released evil forces that have lain dormant in human breasts for years are being compelled to throw off their camouflage and manifest themselves for what they are. The discerning eye can recognize that many whom we meet in the path of life are oppressed by the devil vexed by demons bound by forces that they do not understand and from which they cannot break free. In many cases, they loathe themselves for their actions, weep with sheer frustration at their own impotence to break the chains and pray as best they know how for deliverance. An increasingly large proportion of the younger generation are hopelessly bound by nicotine, alcohol, drugs, sexual desire, and gambling fever. Others are deceived and entangled by satanically inspired cults and societies and by various forms of black magic, witchcraft, and spiritism. Worse still, there are Christians bound by fear, resentment, jealousy, and uncleanness who know full well that they are in themselves a complete contradiction to the liberating gospel they profess. But how to get free? They try hard to pray, to believe, to claim, and yet they still are bound. Quote. And Wallace goes on to give the solution in that book, prayer coupled with fasting. Let me give you an example of this. I want you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, let's pick it up in verse 14. Now, when he, Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they, the people, saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought my son, who has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to, to, him, to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked the father, How long... Has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now let me stop there. I personally do not believe the devil, demonic activity, can can lay hold of a child unless somebody in the family is messing with the occult. I have heard stories of parents or even grandparents who had opened the door to demonic activity. It might have been, you know, through witchcraft or even things like Ouija boards and tarot cards or or something else. You say, yeah, but why would that affect the kids? Because the parents are the guardians of that family. Especially the father is the one who has authority over that family and is to be watching over them and guarding them. If a parent opens the door to their family, to demonic activity, then it affects everybody in the family oftentimes. So somebody was messing with something they shouldn't have been messing with, which allowed this young guy who was from the childhood, this demon, to mess with him. In fact, I think the demon took possession of this kid. Verse 22, And often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. You know, when young people open the door to the devil, and folks, you tell me today, How that when we see the suicide rate among teenagers escalating, and we see this bizarre, shocking practice of suicide packs, where young people will actually get together and say, on a certain date at a certain time, we're all going to commit suicide. You tell me that that's not demonic. And if you will interview people who knew these kids, you will always, I'm convinced, always find that they were involved in the occult in some way, they were listening to music that was demonic. They were playing video games that were demonic and there's a lot of them out there. I mean, the game Dungeons & Dragons, that is notorious for using real incantations and, and um, hexes and things. There have been many stories of people that have gotten involved with Dungeons & Dragons in just a casual way. It got a hold of them. They were playing non-stop and made them committed suicide. Now, this is real stuff. I mean, the world listens to stuff like this and they roll their eyes. They, they, they were out to lunch as Christians. You take this stuff... Too lightly at your own peril. So Jesus said, you know, often the demon tries to kill him by throwing him into the fire, into water, to destroy him. The father said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Some would say, well, that's why the kid wasn't delivered. That was a a negative confession. You know, folks, that was honest. That was flat out honest. I have prayed that prayer different times in my life. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. I I don't have any unbelief that God is who he is. That God can do everything. I just doubt if God's going to work in my life in this situation or my family. I think honesty is something God honors. To put on a spiritual show like we're so spiritual that we never doubt, we don't have any, you know, God sees through that. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. This also gives us a little insight into demonic possession. It can manifest itself in physical ways. Not just among those people who are possessed by demons. I I don't believe a Christian can be possessed by a demon. Possession speaks of ownership and we are all owned by Jesus Christ. But even Christians can open the door to severe demonic oppression. Do you know how many Christians... Are getting involved in things like yoga, in other similar practices like contemplative prayer, spiritual formation, call what you will. They have good intentions. I mean, some are even calling it Christian yoga, which is an absolute oxymoron. It's like saying, well, it's Christian crystal ball, I use it, or Christian deck of tarot cards, or you know. Yoga means to yoke. It was developed by Hindu monks or Buddhist monks to help them yoke with Brahman, the Hindu god, who what? A demon. Oh, but you see, I don't look at it that way. When I practice yoga, they say I do it for relaxation, stress reduction. Folks, I don't care what your intentions are. You get into the devil's territory, and now you're playing the devil's game. You're going to get burned. As the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You don't mess with the occult or with a demonic practice to gain some kind of physical benefits or even because you're well-intentioned and you want to use this thing to help you connect with the true and living God. You stay away from it. You run from it. You renounce it. You repent of it. Get out of there. There's a lot of Christians who have been dabbling in these things. Initially, they felt very good, peaceful, positive. But see, how that's how the devil hooks us, doesn't he? He dangles the good and the positive in front of us, drags us in. But once he's gotten a hold of us in these things, then the negative starts. The anxiety, the anger, the bad dreams, all kinds of things that people are Christians reporting as they've gotten involved with yoga and some other things. Yes, but God will protect me, won't he? Uh, God is trying to protect you by telling you in his word, stay away from these things. You ignore that warning and get involved in these things. You open yourself up to demonic oppression. And sometimes it can be rather severe. Repent. Renounce it. Get out of there. But here, I want you to focus in just the last few verses here. Verse 26, Then the Spirit cried out, Jesus had come out of him, enter him no more. The Spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly. And came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, You know, why couldn't we cast it out, Lord? So Jesus said to them, Listen to this this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Again, there are some demons so fierce and so tenacious. That when you open the door to them, you're not going to get rid of them with a casual prayer here and there. It takes something, you know, you know, again, bringing out the spiritual big guns. Fasting and praying and getting with other people that will fast and pray with you. All right, let me bring this to a close. For many years, and we, I think we've seen, this is just one example in the scriptures of how important fasting and praying. I'm not saying you can't pray without. I'm not saying that you have to fast every time you pray, or God won't listen to you. I'm just saying the situa- some situations warrant uh, really, really getting into prayer and even fasting because the situation is so dire, and the bondage is so great. You need you need something extra. Because. Fasting coupled with prayer is so powerful the devil has worked overtime in the last few generations to make it seem like one of those practices that fanatics get into. Come on, you know, who do you think you are? You think you're an apostle or something? Come on. They fasted. We don't need to fast today. So for, for many years in the West, fasting has been neglected by many churches, many Christians. And yet fasting has always been a part of the lives of God's people, as I've already said in both the Old and New Testaments as well as in modern times. Guys like Moses, David, Elijah, and Daniel were just some of the Old Testament saints that fasted when needing guidance or when facing a trial or a crisis. In New Testament times, Jesus, of course, fasted many times. On one occasion, as we have already pointed out, for 40 days and 40 nights. His example was picked up by the other apostles who made fasting a regular part of their spiritual lives and ministries. In fact, Paul the Apostle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, when describing the difficulties of his ministry, the things that he constantly went through, that the devil was throwing at him, he said, the way I deal with it, among other things, is I fast, and I pray. In more modern times, men like Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, just to name a few, all practice and preach the virtues of Christian fasting. In fact, John Wesley himself tells how Christians in a particular area felt dry and lifeless in their walk with God. Of course, that doesn't affect anybody today. But back then, okay, this one town was or area was spiritually discerning enough to realize that they felt dead and lifeless in their walk. It was a spiritual problem going on. And so a group of leaders in the churches got together and said, look, let's make every Friday a day of fasting and prayer. And almost immediately, Wesley said, as they began to fast and pray, God poured out His Spirit and His power and His blessing and broke the dryness and began to bring renewed life and revival to those that were praying and fasting. Once again, let me quote Arthur Wallace. He said, and I quote, If there is a local church threatened with discord and division, if spiritual life is waning and worldliness abounding, if conversions are few and backslidings frequent, Would not this be a time when leaders should call that church to prayer and fasting? And then he added this statement. Is it some healing touch that we have looked for in vain, despite the assurance of his promise? Or are we still seeking the filling with the spirit and wondering why our prayers are not heard? We think we are waiting for heaven, but heaven is waiting for us. When heaven can point out, the fasting suppliant, and declare, behold, he is praying, the answer will surely be at the door. End quote. And so folks, I would challenge you to pray with me that we begin to set aside one day a week to fast and pray. Individually. Just whatever day God lays in your heart. Okay? Pray about that. Set aside one day. And the way I do it is, after dinner on one day, I begin my fast, and don't break the fast until... Uh, dinner time the next day. And all throughout that day, I try to focus on the Lord. I mean, you, I know you guys have prayer time throughout the week and all, but but uh, if you're going to set aside a day to fast and pray, then maybe, you know, you, you go into the car at lunchtime and you use that hour to really seek the Lord or before work or whatever. The time that you would spend eating or preparing a meal, uh, really set that time aside to seek God. And I would ask you to pray primarily, not exclusively, but primarily for two people. The first one is somebody that is very close to you. A loved one. It could be a spouse, of course, or a wayward child, uh, unsafe spouse, wayward child. It could be uh, a parent or somebody else very close to you. Uh, you know, anybody. Maybe it could be a good friend, a neighbor, uh, that is either unsaved and or in bondage to something like alcohol, pornography, something else. You know, and you, every week you can change. Different people. We, we've got a lot of people, no doubt, that we could look at. But, but you know, Each week, pick somebody from your family or close friend to pray for, and then somebody from your church family that you know is going through a difficult time. Uh, Maybe they're still in bondage to alcohol or something else, and they've shared with the church, pray for me. I want to be free of this, you know, so that you can maybe lift them up uh, on that day, okay? Then the next week, you go ahead and pick a couple different people, and, and, and not just pray for them, of course, but pray, you know, for our nation, Pray for our church in general, that we might be used by God. Pray for your own walk with the Lord, that he would set your heart on fire like never before. You know, these days that we're living in are dark, evil days. Jesus warned us that the closer we got to his return, the more the devil would step up his deception and attacks. If this isn't the time to pull out the big guns, guys, I don't know when it is. And I encourage you guys to take this seriously and to pray about it. Nobody likes the idea of going without food. Certainly not me. (laughs) But you know what? I noticed that during our days of fasting and prayer twice a a year, our five days, God gives me incredible grace. And if God can give me grace to go on a water fast for five days, he can give all of his grace to set aside one day. And really... Ask him, Lord, I want to be used. I want to be a channel. I have loved ones that don't know you. I know people in bondage to alcohol. Lord, no matter what we do, they never seem to break free. Could it be there's a demonic stronghold on that person's life and only fasting and prayer is going to break it? So I challenge you to bring that to the Lord and let's see what he's going to do and keep revival in prayer for our area, for our nation because we desperately need revival in this country. So may God give us grace to present ourselves to the Lord, to humble ourselves one day a week through fasting, that we might be channels through which his will might be brought to the earth, the will that he has decided in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, first of all, that you have, yes, Lord, delivered us from the devil and brought us into your kingdom as your children. But, Lord, sometimes as Christians, we still mess around with some things that we, that you had set us free from. People that get saved often are released from everything immediately, or almost everything. But then they go back to the cigarettes or maybe start having a drink here and there, and pretty soon it's got a hold of them again. And so, Lord, we as your people want to walk in holiness. We don't want to be in bondage to anything. And, Lord, we ask you to give us grace that we... Set aside a day to fast, not to show people how spiritual we are, um, not to lose weight, uh, not for any other reason, but to humble ourselves before you. To examine our hearts, to see areas of sin, compromise, that we might mourn, repent, confess these things to you. And Lord, as we pray for ourselves and for loved ones or acquaintances, that Lord, you would honor these prayers. Break the devil's grip on people's lives that we love. Open their eyes, bring them to Christ. Set people in our church free from areas of bondage they still wrestle with. That, Lord, we might rejoice in the power of your Spirit and knowing that, Lord, you stand ready to give us victory because you told us we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. We need to walk in that victory, Lord. Give us grace to do that. We thank you, Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.